BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is our first episode of 2023. Uh, slightly different uh, publishing and recording schedule this week than most weeks because of my co-host's uh, vacation slash travel schedule. We wanted to be both in our home bases to, to provide you with the best quality podcast content. Normally, we uh, record and publish on Wednesdays. Today, we're doing it on Fridays. And uh, we are now, you know, uh, Tuesday was supposed to be uh well, I'm lo- losing losing track now. Yeah, Tuesday the 3rd was supposed to be, you know, the the ritual beginning of the new Congress. They managed to get it underway on the Senate side, uh but on the House side, as you know, it's it's the what the 4th day of Groundhog Day today. We've had uh, 3 days of successive votes to elect a Speaker of the House. Uh, I believe they got to the 11th vote yesterday, so we're 11 in, and uh, I think they're going to actually gavel in while we are recording this episode. Right now, it's 1141 on uh, on Friday morning as we record, and all signs are that this will not only not be resolved today, but it may go into the weekend uh, or go into next week. You know, one of the things that th- this is this is one of those cases where, you know, after a few days of screwing around, you start getting the collision between constitutional responsibilities and the fact that these members of Congress don't want to want to go home. They want to go back to their districts. They want to, you know, do do what they do on weekends. And there are a few cases where people have like legitimately uh, legitimate family things or healthcare related things that they need to go back to their district. Now, I, I don't know. This has been brought up a few times by by various reporters. Um, you know, who knows? Four hundred thirty five people. All sorts of things are going on. You know, maybe you can't be there for the weekend. So probably the vast majority of members can just you know cancel the plane flight, uh, stick around for the weekend. Probably a few cannot and. Given the tightness of this situation that we have probably all become familiar with now, a few can make a big, big difference. You know, um, in in some ways, especially on the Democratic side. So, for instance, let's just say hypothetically that there were five members of the Democratic caucus who had, you know, some real either their own health care that needed to be addressed or a family or something like that. Five Democrats aren't there. Suddenly the number goes down for Kevin McCarthy. And then maybe you can you can get a quick vote and you can get past this, right? Or maybe um, there's a few Republicans. And then the point is that it's close enough. Normally in you know, when things are scheduled in a normal way, uh, it doesn't matter that much if like two people are missing. But in this case it could matter a lot. And it has been treated as a given over the last uh, few days. Well, sort of nothing has been treated as a given. And in some ways, as a, as a certainly as a pure news event, it is sort of invigorating because you don't know what's going to happen. Like you, like through the course of the day on most of these days, it has not been clear what is going to happen. And I don't mean what's going to happen in the next hour. 
you don't know what's going to happen on is Kevin McCarthy slowly, you know, grinding the opposition down or is it ending for Kevin McCarthy? And we still don't know that. Um, but as as the week has gone on and it's been, you know, kind of clear that things are frozen more or less in amber, I believe, I believe it was only on the first day, I think I have this right, that there was any movement that we that we quickly got to 21 House Republicans not voting for Kevin McCarthy. You had one who was consistently voting present, 20 who were voting for, you know, whichever rando they were nominating at, at the at the given moment. But it's it's held right there. So as it is ground on, it was treated as a given. If this gets to Friday, they're gonna have to adjourn and come back the beginning of the next week. Because again, even if 95% of the members are, you know, are going to cancel their plans, you probably have a few who are locked in. Okay. But just in the last uh, day or so, and even more this morning, they're now saying there might be votes over the weekend. And uh, so I guess there might be votes over the weekend. And who knows what is really... uh, you know what is really going on it's been a this whole drama has been a a funny exercise in the divergence between mainstream media coverage of what is happening here and the kind of coverage that you might get from TPM and what i mean by that in this context is there's uh you know if you watch the sort of CNN, MSNBC, you know, the kind of all of the mainstream media coverage, there's, you know, there's a few crazies and they're just really stubborn and uh, they want to humiliate Kevin McCarthy or they don't trust Kevin McCarthy for all these different things. Whereas we focus more, I think, on the structural issues, that this is really a dynamic about the modern Republican Party that in my mind really goes back to 2009. 2008, 2009, the really catastrophic end of the Bush administration. And by catastrophic in this context, I mean the the overlapping realities of the disaster of the Iraq war, the financial crisis, George W. Bush's extreme lack of popularity at the end of his term that really discredited what the Republican Party had been for the at least the previous eight years, et cetera. Then you have the Tea Party and you kind of get in this modern era. And I've discussed it, um, discussed this basic way of looking at it a number of times in the, on the, in the editor's blogs. I'm not going to get into it again here. Um, but that is, I think, really, that is the story. This isn't about, this isn't about Kevin McCarthy. It's not about trust. It's not about specific things. It's about this this balkanized party uh, that is really a it is a revanchist sectarian party that has taken over the husk of a dead center right party of government, and that's sort of the that that's the that's the whole that's the whole thing. Um, having said that, we don't really don't know how that how that reality is going to play out over the next few days. My my. My best guess is that Kevin McCarthy is, in the narrowest of senses, winning this. And I say that with 51% certainty that I'm right. I have no idea I'm right or not. I could 100% be wrong. But if you press me, it seems to me he is, his, his group is solidifying rather than weakening. And I don't really know where that leaves us exactly, since it doesn't seem like the 20 people are weakening. 
But, but that is where we are. And that's what we're going to discuss today. But before we do, let me remind you of something. And that is, what is that? It's that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're heading out to grab coffee, stop what you're doing and go for Grady's. Packing quality, flavor, and convenience into a pouch, Grady's Cold Brew Kit makes 36 servings and can be enjoyed for as long as two weeks after you brew it. Made with best-in-class ingredients, Grady's gives you that better-than-coffeehouse flavor without the long lines or the big price. Perfect for home, your office, your home office. Just add water and steep for fresh cold brew on demand from your fridge. Hear that? It's your refrigerator congratulating you for making such a great decision. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, co-host Kate Riga, what what is you are in DC? You are part of our 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 DC contingent. What is going on down there? Well, I'm back in our DC contingent as of last night. Um, I've been traveling a lot for Christmas um, between my family and my boyfriend's family, and you can't do any amount of travel this season without coming upon delays. So. You, you weren't tra- you weren't flying with Southwest, were you? No, no. Uh, actually, we did all train travel, including to uh, Wisconsin. We just did like a sleeper car. Oh, thing. that's it, is that your fr- you know? Because I I when I was younger, mm-hmm. I traveled across the country, coast to coast, on the train countless times, basically because I was afraid of flying. <laughs> I hated mm-hmm. flying, <laughs> and so I did it. But I also loved the train. You see oh, amazing yeah. things. Was that your first time taking a long distance train? Yeah. Ride? Yeah. My boyfriend has done it a few times, but um, it was my first experience. And I have to say, I expected it to be cool kind of from his reports, but it was even cooler than I right? thought it would be. Right? Yeah. It was so nice and like cool to see random parts of America up close, you know. You know, they, I haven't done it in a while. And just in case for your listeners, I do fly now. I'm not crazy about it, but I managed to get to the point where I can, you know, fly a couple times a year or something like that. Um, but I know they've done a lot of budget cuts. And at least when I did, you know, I probably haven't done it in, in uh, 20 years or so. Um, but they still, you know, they still have the dining car. You know, you're not going to like a vending machine. There's a chef in the dining car. They're preparing meals for you. And it's just kind of like... It's this kind of thing out of time. Totally. Sort of. They still yeah, have that. Yeah, very old school. Well, yeah. yeah, I would say the meals are more kind of, um, you know, pre-packaged microwave type deals. All right. So, um, they've they've, t- they've reined that in a little bit, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Even though I was still really excited because we got our menu and, you know, complimentary alcoholic beverage with dinner, I thought was a nice touch. You're still and then, seating and you seat yeah. and tableware and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, one of the nicest parts for me, because I kind of worked patchily amidst this trying to work on days where I wasn't going to have, struggle to get internet and everything. But um, you get access to like the first class lounge if you're in a sleeper car mm-hmm. when you get to the station. So, right. uh, you know, in Chicago, I, the whole time I had been kind of nervous about having enough internet to work and everything like that. But in this lounge, there was classical music and bottomless snacks and outlets and all this kind of stuff. So no, that was a nice perk too. You know, that's one of the things about because that still is the same, I think, in, with, with train travel. Because when I was this was mainly when I was in college and the first couple of years out of college. So I rarely had enough money to get a sleeper car or go or go first class, but I did a few times. And it's really it's it's an example there of if you're if you're a coach and you got a layover in Chicago, man, it's like midnight cowboy, right? And you're kind of like <laughs> sprawled out on a yeah. chair. But if you're in first class, it's like it's first class. Mm-hmm. It's nice. It's it's you know they're taking care of you. Yeah, so how the other you know, half lives. That's the class, the class war on yeah, exactly. uh, in, in, in America's uh, America's rail service. Yeah, so you know, I had been checking in on the vote, you know, even on my days off to just kind of make sure that I wasn't needed. Um, as you know, we're wending through the hills of you know Middle Pennsylvania or whatever, and. Oh, my God. I mean, it was I think going into this, right, if you had asked us last week, we would have said we have long expected this to be a shit show. Right. Like there we knew that the kind of hardliners were going to be this is everything they love. Right. It's drama. It's a chance to get on TV. It's a chance to kind of like stick it to leadership. It's ideologically, you know, unpinned to anything specific. It's just kind of everything that they like. Um, 
at beginning of the new Congress. So there's the first day of school excitement over top it. Um, so I think we knew it was going to be bad. I, speaking for myself, did not realize that Team Kevin would go in so utterly planless that kind of the best strategy they could rustle up was just a, you know, the war of attrition thing, like keep voting until maybe, maybe question market works or, or people get tired of being there, resulting in, as you say, 11 back to back votes where the headline to each is, and Kevin McCarthy again <laughs> fails to win the gavel. And the thing that's, I think, just so poetic justice about this moment is we've said it a bunch before, but, you know, Kevin McCarthy has empowered this faction of the party for years. I mean, that's been how he's taken control, right? He just, he doesn't try to rein them in. He basically lets them run things. And that's how he tries to stay amenable to everyone. Um, And now that practice is just so directly coming back to bite him because now he finds himself in a situation that, you know, countless Democrats have, that Obama has, that, you know, Senate Democrats had. This situation where he's basically trying to figure out like, okay, what do you want? What do you guys want? And the reality is, and the reality has been, you know, since at least the Obama presidency, they don't want anything. This isn't about policy. This is about taking a scalp, getting a lot of media attention, getting to kind of put this sheen of, you know, independent bucking party leadership on top of what is actually just kind of petulance and, you know, getting to call that a a policy position. So he's just it's so, so poetic that he is now so thoroughly and humiliatingly reaping what he sowed for years to put himself in this position. Well, in in in. And one part of that is that, you know, he made the decision that he was not going to be John Boehner and not going to be Paul Ryan because he wasn't going to dick around with them. Mm-hmm. He just say, what do you want? And I will give it to you. And that's how we're going to resolve this. I will, I will be your, you know, I will be your advocate. I will be your guy. And the paradox is by giving them everything in advance, all he had left to give them is him. He was the last thing that they could that they could, you know, nail to the wall. And that's really the essence of it. And that's why, you know, it's good if you if you check out TPM every few days cuz this isn't about trust and Kevin McCarthy. That's that's bull. You know, you trust or not trust, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. They trust Steve Scalise more. No. This is just a a basic structural thing. Um, and, and this tiny, this tiny margin has sort of forced it to the fore. Um, and, you know, and, and, and here we are. And, you know, one thing, if, if for those of you who may not remember, to understand what McCarthy is doing here and doing to, to Kate's point, probably gives it more of a sheen of strategy than it actually has it is, you know, in 2015, he was he was John Boehner's deputy. He was the majority leader. The majority leader becomes speaker, period. That's how it works. Boehner leaves. It's McCarthy's next. People were like, eh, Kevin McCarthy, what? You know, and then he he gave a couple interviews where he was really clumsy. Like he gave an interview and he said, in essence, yeah, the Benghazi thing was that that wasn't real. That was just about kind of you know bruising up Hillary Clinton, and and all the Republicans were like, "Dude, what? Like, how did you say that?" And so the key wasn't in in 2015. The key wasn't oh we don't trust Kevin or Kevin is a rhino. It was it was partly the Freedom Caucus, which had in essence, just dispatched Sean Boehner. But it was also that the other people in the caucus, a lot of people in the caucus were like, we're not sure you're really ready to be speaker. You, you're, you know, I'm not sure you can be our, 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 our spokesperson. So in a kind of a massive humiliation, they said, no, and we're going to get Paul Ryan who really was not looking for the job. He was budget chair, I believe. Um, and that actually gave Paul Ryan 
a brief period of insulation from this because he wasn't begging for the job. I mean, I'm sure he was once he, you know, warmed to it, he's happy to, you know, he's an ambitious guy, but he was not asking for it. And so his thing was kind of like, if you need me to kind of get collectively get yourselves out of this jam, like, okay, I'll do it. Um, so, but the point is, is that there was some rumblings. McCarthy isn't ready. Like it's not going to happen. And he's bowed out. And that has obviously shaped his understanding ever since. I'm not going to bow out again. There's absolutely no fucking way. Because just in the way these things, in the way these things, it's it's one thing, you know, at the time in 2015, um, I believe, no, exactly. McCarthy, I believe, came into office in the late Bush administration or possibly in 2008. He'd only been there for like seven years, right? So you can kind of say, all right, I was majority leader, but I was a pretty pretty new guy. Maybe it wasn't quite my time yet. So you can kind of absorb that humiliation once. But now it's seven years later, and he has been the majority leader and then the leader ever since. If he gets passed over now, he's got to leave Congress, and his and his and his political career is essentially over. You don't you you certainly don't go back. You have a, you have Steve Scalise jump jump over you, and go back to being majority leader. That's just too that's too much even for a Kevin McCarthy. And you don't just go back. Oh, I'm just going to go back to being like some rando who runs a subcommittee. It, 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 that's not how it works. You're out. You got to leave. It's it's too embarrassing to stay. He's not going to run for Senate. He's from California. So like, is he going to run for governor? No, he's from California. So unless he wants to do what every other Republican does now and relocate to Florida, he's done. So he's all in. And, you know, I, I what Kate said is 100% right. But I don't think he had any choice. They were saying no, and he made the calculation kind of like, okay, I say no too. I'm not bowing out. So we're just going to kind of run into, run straight into this, uh, you know, meat grinder and just see what happens. And we are seeing what happens. And, and that's just kind of where we are. And, you know, if anything, I kind of... <laughs> Respect and Kevin McCarthy are two very distant realities in my, you know, in 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 my cosmology. But I don't know, got a certain respect for him. Just saying, like, fuck it, I'm not going anywhere. And and you know, do do you backbench person? Do you want to tell me to leave? Tell me, or Steve Scalise, you want to tell me it's time? Tell me, Steve, because I'm not fucking going anywhere. And that's kind of where we are. And I do think his, I think his support is stiffening rather than loosening. Not so much because people are crazy about him, but because they know they don't want to give in to these people. And that's, so that's kind of where we are, I think. Well, and I think also the kind of the fundamental card in his hand is just who better, right? I mean, because I do think if there was some kind of figure who was seen as this like big up and coming star who represented a more, not that Kevin McCarthy is a centrist by any means, but who kind of was more of a piece with the the right wing of the party, maybe that would provide like a legitimate rallying point. But what we've seen now with these various people that the hardliners are kind of just tossing up to rally around is like the biggest stories you kind of see about them are, you know, a guide to who Byron Donalds is, right? Like from the from the local papers, because people have never heard of these people before. You know, there is some amount of thin bench here to pick from in terms of kind of who is this quote unquote consensus candidate. And some of that is just because the Republican Party is just so rent right now. You you can't pick anyone kind of from the same middle track because the right wing wouldn't have it. And then what, is it going to be Jim Jordan? Like, it's just, they're, they're, the party's in such a state that there's just not a good successor. And of course, you know, 
Could it be Scalise, you know, what David Duke without baggage? Maybe, sure. But also by this point, it's also kind of hard to see him as anything but almost of a piece with Kevin McCarthy because yeah, they have been he? together for so long. Totally. He he is he is indistinct. I mean, he it is prop the the only thing in Scalise's favor is that when Kevin McCarthy got to Congress, he was just kind of a chamber of commerce, low taxes. Republican. He wasn't he wasn't a tea partier or so. You know, that's he's from Bakersfield in California. And that's kind of what you get in in from Bakersfield. Steve Scalise, as you said, came in as a much more conservative guy in in Republican politics, but so much has changed since then that with the emergence of the Tea Party and all, you know, all, all, all this kind of stuff, that that's kind of old news at this point. And certainly since they've been running things together for, I can't remember if Scalise was uh, McCarthy's deputy. Well, I guess he was, basically he's been second to McCarthy as McCarthy has come, you know, come up after Ryan left and everything. They're indistinguishable. And, and I mean, and, and we need to remember the basic structural issue here, which is that the Freedom Caucus has to run the Republican Party, but one of its own members cannot be the nominal leader of the Republican Party because they're too wild and they expose the reality that creates the basic instability within the Republican Party. Which is, you know, I mentioned before, you have a revanchist right-wing populist party, sort of, you know, one of these things where someone dies and a kind of a, an evil spirit takes over the body and walks around in it as a zombie, right? The Tea Party is walking around in the zombie corpse of what used to be the Republican Party. Um, and that makes it all work because that party, that shell can elect people in lots of parts of the country. But the Freedom Caucus only exists in like Republican plus 20 districts. So Andy Biggs or Matt, Matt Gates or Jim Jordan or Marjorie Green, these people can't be leader and they know that. At heart, they know that. A, they can't be the public face and there's zero way that they would ever win a leadership election in 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 the GOP uh, in the in 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 the House GOP. So it's just it's you know and and what they would need the person that we're talking about here would have to be a politician who was pretty right wing, but had a kind of a touch, you know. And a lot of politicians that's often um, the power of a certain kind of politician where substantively they are pretty right wing or are pretty left wing but they just have kind of a common touch that they don't that they don't feel that way but that person doesn't exist not in the house gop yeah and so our kind of latest thing is that we know this morning um the house republican conference had a conference call, which is kind of notable in and of itself because all the members are here, right? They've been here for days and it's telling, I think, that McCarthy and co. want to avoid the dramatics of an in-person hearing for a, an easier to control conference call. Um, and we know from that call, basically, McCarthy said the same thing he said coming to the Hill this morning, which was, we've made progress, things are getting better there might still not be a deal today. <laughs> so, well, and let and let's and let's just briefly play out for listeners why that's better. A conference call when you want someone to stop talking, you just push the mute button. And or and and put on someone else's. You don't have a situation where it kind of you, you're never really in control of a meeting in a big room with 200 plus people. On a conference call, you control the mute button, so you're really it's a it's a one-way thing. Right. Um, and it's just 
what a start to this Congress. You have Democrats who just lost the House and, you know, like we've been talking about, by much less than expected. But still, they lost their majorities. That's generally not a happy time for the party. But you've got them, you know, like eating popcorn and kind of tweeting out their glee and everything. And what a time for Nancy Pelosi to hand over her gavel. I mean, could there be kind of a better episode to cement her legacy as a incredibly competent whip and legislator? Um, so you've got all this happening while Republicans are running around uh, trying to spin this as debate is healthy, democracy is healthy. Um, and meanwhile, the other parts of what a House member does are starting to be threatened as well. Because, you know, obviously we think about it all from the political lens, right? They can't take up legislation. They can't organize their committees. They can't put together a rules package. But then you've also got the piece of House members do constituent services. You know, they help constituents oftentimes navigate, you know, federal agencies or do other kind of things like that. That is in limbo, whether that can happen or not right now. Pretty soon, we're going to get to a point where staff is going to not be paid. You know, it's just none of the wheels can start without a speaker. On the constituent service, I think that it's not in limbo. It's actually not happening. Like, I don't know exactly the details here. And I'm curious if they're really unable to deal with it informally. But there has at least been pretty solid reporting that when a member of Congress, you know, reaches out to or, you know, a staffer of a member of Congress reaches out to like the IRS about a constituent issue, the IRS basically says, we're really sorry, but you're not, you're not a member of Congress. So we, we can't do anything. Well, it's been mixed. So okay. they're taking the IRS as a good example because they are basically saying we're not going to send the, you know, delicate taxpayer details before you're a member, which kind of makes sense. You know, you're going to want to wait on that. But they said you can also, their liaisons can help with kind of a new and existing casework, but there is that kind of confidentiality divide. Okay, that makes sense. I was wondering, it does seem like a little, a bit of standing on principle. Like, I'm not sure. It's not like there's... Yeah. I mean, and then you have like, there was a Republican representative uh, last night who sent Biden an angry letter being like, how dare your agencies not do more to help us serve our constituents, you know, to which I, I assume Biden would respond, well, elect a speaker, right? <laughs> and then kind of get rid of all these hiccups. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's, al- it's also true that, that um, well, it, it's so absurd. There's nothing there. The House can do whatever it wants. There would be nothing stopping taking some complete rando backbencher who obviously has no real power, who has no ambition to be speaker and saying, we are going to make this guy speaker for two weeks. And he is then going to, uh, you know, swear everybody in. He is going to uh, set up all the committees. He's going to get everything underway. And then in two weeks, he is going to resign. And then we are going to kind of duke it out again, uh, having a speaker election. Only then we'll all be members of Congress and there will be committees. Um, But clearly, that is not happening because. The people holding things up, it's a feature, not a bug. You're trying to break things. You're trying to create an unworkable situation. So the idea that you would have cooler heads prevail and say, look, let's punt it, get the house organized in the in the technical sense of the word, and then we'll come back to this. Of course, they don't want to do this because they want, this is what they do. They want to break things. They want to create a a a dysfunction and you know it's 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 telling there was a tweet from um matt gates a couple days ago i think it i think it was after the first day maybe it was after the second day where he basically said all right you know we're still voting for speaker but you know this means uh you know kind of until it happens no more money for ukraine and no more uh you know basically saying great We've basically shut the government down. So that's good. So we're not in a rush because we don't want the government to function at all, which is fundamentally what this is about. It's so encapsulated by, you know, now former Representative Madison Cawthorns only hiring a comms team and not a legislative team. It's that same dynamic. I mean, these people 
they want to troll and they want attention for trolling. And that's exactly what they're getting. So any idea of like, you know, maybe they'll put this aside so we can get back to the business of running the country. It's like, who are you? I mean, have you watched (laughs) these people at all? What interest do they have in that? You know, totally, totally, Uh, not exactly public servants. Um, Yep. So there's one piece of this. I'm going to pull in one of our questions early to get into this because there's been a lot of different uh, theorizing and thought bubbling about what role Democrats play here if Republicans keep being unable to elect a speaker on their own. So we'll start with this question from Dwayne, who says, is there any chance that Democrats knowing that Jeffries will never actually win the speakership would recruit a moderate Republican knowing that they only need to persuade a handful of other moderate Republicans to support them? So this is basically the theory of bring a palatable option to Democrats to the table so Democrats will provide the votes combined with the sane Republicans to elect a speaker. And this has been going around kind of a bit. And I actually uh, listened in on a no labels call on Wednesday uh, with with Representative Don Bacon about this. And of, co- of course, Joe Lieberman was there. Um, and I just, it's funny to listen to it because it was all of this very kind of Kirsten Cinema-esque talk of like, people want a bipartisan option. You know, people want uh, kind of a, what seems like a never Trumper Republican who can win on, win the Democrats over and will win the Republicans. And like, that's how we'll do it. And that is just so erasing the part of that situation, which is you're asking Democrats to help Republicans out of a self-inflicted catastrophe mostly centered on a man who has never sought to help Democrats in any kind of way. And you're expecting that they're going to do that without concessions that would make the deal most likely unpalatable to Republicans. I mean, we're in a situation where Democrats would be fools if they agreed to give any votes for anything less than, you know, like chairmanships of committees. Like they would have had all the leverage here. And it was it's just so, I think, a little too West Wing- to to think about, you know, Democrats just kind of like lending their votes as a sign of democratic goodwill. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the whole the whole that whole conversation exists absent a few really basic realities. And the first reality is in look, let's let's play out the scenario that you're describing that, that we're hear, hearing people discussing, which is okay, Democrats say, fine, we're not going to get Hakeem Jeffries, but we're going to pick this uh there's a guy what Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania, uh you know, kind of moderate Republican from a swing district. We'll get behind him and surely we can find a dozen moderates who will moderate Republicans who will vote and then they'll have every everybody happy. Okay. Those 12 will end their political careers in in two years, a hundred percent. That is at least as bad as voting to impeach Donald Trump. Their political careers will end. Even if they would like to do that, even doesn't, none of that matters. You are, you are saying, can you find five, you know, I guess you only need, uh, well, I guess you'd need five once, five or six, depending on uh, whether this is, there's one, one member of, one Democrat uh, passed away. And so that seat, that's why there's 212 Democrats, even though there's, you know, probably going to be 213, blah, 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 blah. So are you going to find any number who to resolve this, that they are going to end their political careers? (laughs) Not yet, at least. Right. And, and it's really hard for me to imagine when that would ever happen. It's just it's just not going to happen. You might as well ask them to switch parties. That's actually more plausible, even though it is utterly implausible, because when you get elected to Congress, you are a professional Republican. You didn't just decide to run for office. You're like, eh, Democrat, Republican, I'm going to I'm going to run as a Republican. You have to be really wired and rep- so the whole thing is nonsense. Also, and your career's I over. To, I just want to add really quick, I think all that's right. And the people who would be most likely to do that are mostly not in Congress anymore because of their Trump impeachment votes. Yes, so exactly. Ex- exactly. Exactly. And and so those people are not in Congress. And the people who are still in Congress watched what happened mm-hmm. to the people who voted for impeachment or the January 6th committee or whatever. 
right? They know the they know the consequences. So A, that is not going to happen. Now let's take the other scenario that um, the you know someone comes up representing uh, 190 Republicans who just say, fuck this, we need to organize the House. So, or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's 200 with Kevin McCarthy. We need, we need 15 votes or however many votes. One key thing here is for a lot of reasons, I think you can almost be certain this is not going to be a matter of picking off the five most conservative House Democrats. If something like that happened, there would be a caucus-wide agreement. Okay, you 10 people, it's cool if you agree to do this. We're not going to we're not all going to do it, but we have agreed that we are okay with you doing it. So so it it, it would have to be a caucus-wide decision. I almost guarantee you. Now, a lot, often this is discussed as well, they'll vote for a moderate uh, you know, representative frankly moderate or not that doesn't that doesn't matter that's irrelevant the only way this would make any sense for the the absolute minimum that any that democrats could agree to would be something like this no debt ceiling hostage taking that is off the table no government shutdowns off the table the third would have to be at a minimum bipartisan agreement on subpoenas investigative committees the Republican chairman has to agree and the Democratic rain, ranking member, which basically means that investigations become fairly bipartisan. Not everything's a subpoena, but when the, when the, you know, when the rubber really hits the road, it's when you're subpoenaing people. Okay. Now, if Democrats wanted to, you know, uh, drive not even a hard bargain, just a real bargain, it would have to include some level of, say, over the legislative calendar and control of the floor. Um, because, you know, you talk about power sharing, the power of the speakership is the power is controlling the floor and the legislative calendar, what gets voted on. Now, smart people could figure out a way where Republicans are basically calling the shots there, but Democrats can veto a cup, whatever. I'm pretty sure that Democrats would agree to power sharing for those three things. And that would probably make a lot of Democrats around the country not terribly happy because those are really the absolute minimum. But the other thing, again, each of those things is kryptonite for any Republican, any Republican. The big thing they are looking for, forward to in this entire Congress is the debt ceiling showdown. So it would, it would be the equivalent of like in the reverse if, 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 the, if the ask for Republicans was, okay, no social spending and no Obamacare. Can we agree on that? Well, of course not. That's why we're here, right? So there's just, now, this plays out for a couple more weeks. You know, who knows? I don't know what's, I don't know uh, what can happen, but it's just important to realize that, that in this Republican party, those things are just kryptonite. And again, why would, think of it this way, people, you know, you hear people say, hey, for the country, it's not fair, but do it for the country. What Republicans are saying is, we are going to threaten to drive the country into default unless you repeal all the stuff you did over the last two years and push through big cuts on Social Security and Medicare. So their agenda is basically to hold a gun to the heads of President Biden and the Democrats and force these horrific things. So is that for the country? It's it, it's better not to have a house. Now, the rubber's going to hit the road, you know, meet the road at some point later this year, because at least under the current framework, you've got to pass a debt ceiling extension. And you need a, you need a house of representatives to do that. Um, but again, the basic point is, I think there's every reason to say it's not only not in the, in the Democrats' interest, it's not in the country's interest without at least those uh, commitments that you would have to find a way to make them, you know, enforceable commitments, not to have legislative hostage taking and terrorism. Yeah. Let's take Anne's other 
our other question, which is from Anne here, because it kind of ties into this. Um, I'm thoroughly enjoying watching Kevin McCarthy be humiliated, of course, but also curious about possible outcomes. Is there any realistic outcome that is good for functioning government or at least less bad than what we were expecting? And I mean, that has to be what you're saying, Josh, right? It has to just be that Republicans are just pushed into a place where they feel they have to cooperate with Democrats and are willing to kind of disarm in those in some of those key ways um because otherwise i mean look at the other side of it right you just have mccarthy agreeing to every last demand from the mac gateses of the party um which definitely fun from the watching kevin mccarthy be humiliated perspective but hard to argue that you know only needing one or two members to oust a speaker at any time is going to be particularly good for a well-functioning government Right. Well, I mean, you know, the, the since, you know, look, we, we're past the kind of they do a couple votes on one day and it gets resolved. Clearly, this is a stalemate. We don't know how long this is going. This is going to go on. I think it's important to be really concrete about what the stakes are here. Um, obviously, this is a total shit show and it it just shows as clearly as can be shown the GOP is just incapable and unwilling to govern. But what are the consequences? In the short term, there aren't a lot of consequences. You're hearing stuff about, well, what if there's a national security emergency? Well, the House doesn't deal with national security emergencies. The president deals with national security emergencies. Um, in, in, in all frankness, um, the executive branch usually doesn't want to hear from Congress during national security emergencies. Um, do we need an oversight? There is a Senate. They can do oversight. I'm not saying this is ideal. I'm just trying to make the point that this idea that the nation is in danger in the short term, that's not really true. Um, there are issues, certainly potential issues with constituent service. Um, the rubber meets the road later in 2000, and I don't know exactly the dates on these things. They're both, I think, late summer, early fall. When you will need a House of Representatives to pass a bill to fund the government, and you will need a functioning House of Representatives to pass a, a, a increase in the debt ceiling. At that point, it becomes real, like very real. But that is probably a good seven or eight months away. Um, and again, I'm not saying this is great, but there is this, I, I, I'm seeing in the commentary now, again, there's no, there can't be security briefings. Uh, there, what if there's a national emergency? That, that's not really a thing. You know, to the extent that you need outside players um, being briefed on, 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 on what the executive branch is doing in some sort of national security crisis, Senate's open. They're, they're doing stuff. Um, and again, generally speaking, you don't need... You don't need to pass laws in those kind of emergencies. You know, lots of different kinds of emergencies can happen. I guess you could have a replay of the 2008 financial crisis where you need to pass TARP. I mean, but generally speaking, in the short to near term, the consequences, the hard consequences, the catastrophic consequences are not great. I, or, you know, not huge. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention kind of before we wrap is we are recording this on Friday, which is the two-year anniversary of the insurrection, um, which kind of creates a bit of an odd split screen today while you have the Republican conference and the House writ large kind of paralyzed by this generally the set of Republicans who are most aligned with the insurrectionists and, and most aligned with that part of the party, you know, with obviously a couple exceptions because McCarthy has managed to recruit, you know, a couple of the kind of right wing whack jobs. But Largely, those are the type of people who are creating the chaos right now. And then on the other screen, you know, you've got Biden giving out the medals to to 12 people, but, you know, police officers and, and election administrators and different people who kind of played a role in trying to avert the January 6th catastrophe. So it, it really the the reaping sowing thing, it's just it's so stark, almost cinematic today. No, it absolutely is. And, and I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was thinking I haven't done it yet, but I, I want to pull up, I think we were, we were doing video at that point, uh, pull up the video 
of the January, because we were recording during the insurrection. We were recording this podcast. And I remember that when we were doing it, I was watching, just watching the TV coverage. Because again, we, we didn't know January 6th was going to happen, but we knew it was going to be a pretty news-packed day, right? We knew, we knew it was, we was going to be a bit you know wild, as, as, as the former president prophetically put it. Um, and I remember during, during our recording, I saw uh, what we now know as the insurrectionists kind of uh, sort of, uh, you know, pushing back and forth on the barricades in front of some police and I think pushing the barricades down. And I remember saying something like, wow, it looks like it's getting a little, a little intense, like it's, it's getting a little out of control. And obviously, no, it's you know, that, that happens sometimes, right? There's a police cordon and there's a little jostling or something like that. But it just reminds me that just puts that, that moment reminds me how things quickly went from just normal to really not normal, as we all, you know, as, as we all know. And just because we were recording, it's, it's sort of uh, preserved in amber, as it were. I mean, I, I you know, um, I think I'm going to go back and look, and maybe I'm maybe I'm recalling it a little a little differently. It's possible that that was. It's possible that that the part I'm remembering was actually you know when we had our headsets on and everything, but maybe we hadn't started recording. I don't remember exactly. I think it was when we were recording, but but who knows? You can do your own good listener. You can do your own detective work and see the see the quality of my of my memory. But yes, you know this was this was uh, two years ago, and things got really weird, really fast and really bad. And it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's worth remembering how crazy that was. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we'll continue to, to watch and report. It seems like we're in for uh, many more days of this. Yeah. It's just, I, 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 I flipped on the TV feed as we were talking and, and um, they, I, I believe they just moved from, you know, the nomination speechless to actual voting. So now we are on uh, number 12, oh, up to a awesome. dozen. He's got a- uh, This is the one you've been waiting for. Yeah. McCarthy's <laughs> got a whole carton of eggs right here. Uh, okay. Well, that is our show for today. Let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get uh, 25% off if you use the promo code TPM when you go to Grady's Cold Brew com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. You get 25% off on not just your first, but your 10th, your 100th, your 1,000th order of Grady's Cold Brew. So all I guess right. that's it. That's all we got for this week, folks. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 